0: Podcast by the Gospel Coalition Australia. Following Jesus is a whole of life pursuit. As friends talk and share and learn and ask, we pray that you would be encouraged to think deeply.
1: again everyone welcome to another of the everyday conversations podcasts um, this is uh, mikey lynch who leads the um afes team down in uh, utahs in hobart uh a, a little while ago we did an episode together with rob smith and chris watkin who are here as well um, and promised we'd do what we well, said we'd wanted to do a part two mm-hmm. and tgca said yes but we're doing part two with a twist because um after we signed off last time and grumbled with one another about how we wished it would go longer Um, we had the conversation with Brianna McLean, who was helping organise that last podcast episode. And that was a, a, we felt just as good, if not a better conversation than the one that was recorded. So we uh, asked if Brianna would be willing to be a part of the convo this time around. And you said yes. So who are you, Brianna?
0: Yeah, absolutely thrilled to be here. Um, So I'm the producer of the Everyday Conversations podcast for the Gospel Coalition Australia. Uh, And I work for TGCA as a writer and editor and researcher and resource producer. Um, It's a really, really fun job. Uh, And this podcast is a great, yeah, is a great part of that. Uh, And I also study at the University of Sydney. Uh, I'm doing a double major in philosophy and classical Greek.
1: Awesome. So it's great to have you on board. Now, for those who missed the first one, they should go back and listen to it anyway, shouldn't they? Definitely. But we may as well do a quick little introduction again. Rob, who are you? And Chris, who are you?
2: Uh, Yes, Rob Smith. I uh, teach theology and ethics at Sydney Missionary and Bible College and various other things as well. I'm currently uh, writing a PhD on on transgenderism, which is making me grapple with a whole lot of uh, larger cultural questions and philosophical, historical questions as well. So uh, I enjoy this
1: conversation very much. Yeah, it's great to be back. And Chris?
3: And I'm, yeah, hi, Chris Watkin. I lecture at Monash University, in down in Melbourne and my main area of research is in modern and contemporary European philosophy so postmodernism, uh, what people are thinking today.
1: That's awesome so we, um, we were discussing so-called critical theory and cultural Marxism last time and one of the things that buzzes around all of that that we didn't get to last time was this whole concept of cancel culture um, and I don't know whether you've got you, your kind of initial reactions to that, Brianna, in terms of what is it? Is it even a thing? How is it different now to what it might've been in the past? Any any thoughts on, are you for it? Are you against it? Do you believe in it? Are you a cancel culture denier? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah, interesting. So I think, um, yeah, the truth is that humans always disagree with one another. And when disagreements happen between two voices, we tend to say, well, the other voice shouldn't be able to speak because they're wrong. Um, and in a, in a very short synopsis, that's kind of what undergirds cancel culture, but that undergirds every human conversation ever. So they, I think there is something unique about cancel culture um, and that is the, oh, probably two things. I think one is like the ruthlessness of cancel culture. Um, it, it's, it's very complete if in cancel culture is this idea of um if there's a movement or a voice or an opinion or an action that is deemed um, oppressive or offensive the totality of that movement action voice must be silenced and shunned um and there's no kind of room for conversation or debate in that it, it's just it's out
1: um, and it's kind of like it's, it's, it's not just that particular speech or document or uh, statement should be removed, but like it's like it well, who gets cancelled? Mm. You do. You're now, Brianna is just yeah, 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 cancelled.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and it might be something that even is not related to the the area of your life mm. in which you said it. It might be something uncovered about some other area of yeah. your life yep. or even someone you're connected with one step removed you're friends with someone who said something so therefore you must be that's right yeah yeah yeah
0: so i guess that's the second thing um it's very personal um it, it yeah it's it's quite ruthless and it's very personal um and it and it kind of has one of the interesting things that we actually chatted about after the podcast stopped recording last time is how cancel culture has filtered down from the academy into kind of personal relationship vocabulary that actually um yeah, there's instances in kind of everyday life away from um, academia where in personal relationships, people are kind of actioning this. This I don't want to be rostered
1: on with that workmate or I don't want to be in yeah, that Bible yeah, study yeah. with that person. Because or even too... just
0: friends. There's there's some yeah. kind of social media trends of, um, um, you know, just cancel them. If you don't like the friends, just cancel friend. yeah. Um, And that's just because of personal disagreement, not because of a, of a political movement or, or voice
2: yeah sorry something in uh, i have noticed a little bit of what you might call concept creep with council culture <laughs> Love that. In, in that um for some people even just disagreement gets referred to as council culture which uh, you no know, disagreements disagreement and yeah. there can even be uncharitable and quite mm. nasty disagreement which is still perhaps not quite the same as uh council culture in my mind the the, the the two versions i think i've just heard you talking about brianna uh, there's the sort of idea version and the personal version. The idea is that this idea cannot be voiced yeah, uh, and, uh, and just should not be tolerated as uh, even for discussion. But then the personal end of that is when the person who voices that idea uh, needs really to be, as it were, kind of erased from society mm. uh, in whatever ways it can be done, you know, yeah. unfriended. Uh, but, but the nastier forms are when, you know, I guess, people go after uh, a person's employment and try yeah. to get them Sacked and lot uh, of their livelihood, and so yeah, it can get that. That's when I see cancel culture. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. perhaps with capital C's um, coming. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Helpful distinction. Yeah. Mm. So what,
1: what's um, I mean? The, so there are some things that every society or group has. Things that it says. This these ideas get to the fringe of what's what's appropriate, allowable, speakable. And even certain associations of a certain degree of severity, we say, if this person is shown to have close, sympathetic, cooperative association with certain groups, those might be so alarming that we say, "Oh no, we we don't want to tolerate that." But um, I, I guess inbuilt into um, I guess a fairly relatively new concept of, of political liberalism is saying we want to try and have those things fairly broad, if we can. We want to try and have. That there's a lot that can be gained intellectually and relationally and culturally by having a fairly broad pool of ideas and connections and relationships uh, tolerated that good outcomes can come from that in terms of truth and in terms of co- human cooperation, you know, it's kind of pushed the bounds of what's possible. You know, I guess at the time of the reformation, it was unthinkable that you could have both Catholics and Protestants all just collaborating together. We, you had to choose, you know, and, um, Uh, and yet through a process that was increasingly, you know, discovered and normalised that you could have more. Um, Is there a sense, and maybe I'll throw to you on this, Chris, is there a sense in which some of the kind of critical theories that probe the privilege inherent in kind of Western liberalism is now starting to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that was liberal, but only for really certain, like it became broad and permissible, but really for only certain groups and it served the ends of certain groups and and so maybe part of this pushing against free speech is that you know it's asking the question free speech dot 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 for whom and that's a bit of what is, is that a fair call part of what the dynamic is do you want to speak to that at all Chris
3: yeah I'd love to I think it's really helpful to bring a bit of a historical perspective into this so here we are at a moment in history where council culture is a thing so dial it back 10, 20 years. What was the problem? It was almost the opposite. Mm-hmm. It was that you weren't allowed to disagree at all. Uh, there, there was the, the sense that, that everybody fundamentally believes the same thing. And you banging on about your individual point of view uh, is, is incredibly damaging. And, and I think you've got to have both of those halves of the picture in to understand what's really happening. And both of them are symptoms of the same disease, which is that perhaps you could say that our culture has lost the ability to disagree civilly. And it, it you, you yo-yo between one extreme and the other. So then the question comes, well, where, what is the ground of that possibility to, to disagree profoundly, and yet not want to raise from the earth, so to speak, the, the, the people with whom one disagrees. And the, the short version of the answer to that, I think, is that we, we really struggle, and this is going to sound incredibly philosophical, but I'm going to try and drag it down to earth, mm-hmm. um, to, to to juggle with the one and the many. Um, the, there's, there's either a hyper-individualism in which everything is absolutely unique and cannot be measured or grouped together with anything else, uh, or there's an, a demand that that everything be treated absolutely equally. And and those those two are always pushing against each other. And they've been pushing against each other since the the dawn of civilization. I'm gonna go back to the ancient Greek philosophers. You've got Parmenides with the one, Heraclitus with the many, and and attempt after attempt after attempt has been made to try and have a healthy marriage of universality that includes everything. Everything is, is, is in the one so to speak, and an individuality and uniqueness as well. Um, and mm. I guess what Christians have to contribute to that debate, and it's a huge contribution, is that the, the Trinity is an unrivaled, subtle, beguiling, beautiful way of, of bringing those two things that otherwise would be intentioned together, um, in a way uh, that there's there 's difference, but there 's also commonality and and that cascades through from the very nature of God itself to a Christian way of looking at the world, Christian way of even disagreeing with people you know with whom we share the image of god and and you you take that theological ground away and and I think you know as a Christian, we need to say it it becomes incredibly hard and, and to sympathize with a culture for which it is incredibly hard to disagree well if you don't have that scripture to help you
0: yeah interesting i think the other the other thing that just sprung to mind as you were talking about the one versus the many is how interesting it is that there's a um even within kind of contemporary post-modern critical theory culture um there actually is a really a real tension of a desire for the one and the many because Individual rights are, you know, hailed as um, the gold standard, but actually, so much of the language and the motivation behind critical theory is about community. It's about belonging and togetherness and groups, minority, majority, that that kind of language. So even within even within that, you see that that tussle to prioritise the the one or the many.
2: If I can just reflect on my own teaching of the doctrine of God, particularly teaching the doctrine of the trinity i often find students saying this as they've been forced to grapple with um, both the unity of god and and persons of the godhead and to think those two realities in, into each other uh it's helped them to think about the world and relationships and all of these uh, kinds of tensions which
1: there's that great about- line is it one of the Gregories that has the can't think of the one without being thrown back to the many and can't yeah. contemplate the many without you know considering the the oneness or something along those lines that it's that that's there's got to be a bit of that going on doesn't
2: there that's right it, it's that integration of uh, of two thoughts rather than the, the swinging sort of yeah. from one to the other which is i think what you're describing brianna which is certainly what i see that people want that but they don't know how to have but so they 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 tend to just you know flick back and forth from one to the other whereas as Chris was saying that it, it's the reality of god's tri-unity that actually brings those two uh, mm-hmm into the same
3: state yeah and I think another doctrine that's incredibly helpful in thinking this through is is the Christian distinctive of grace because it, it really helps us to to put flesh on the bones of what you do with people you disagree with you know because as you were rightly saying at the beginning Brianna and Mikey we, we all disagree that's not new to our society um that that's a you know something that all cultures have to grapple with but what is different is what you do with that disagreement and I'm just going to lean on Tim Keller for a moment. He's got a brilliant argument in, I think it's in The Reason for God, uh, where he says that whatever line you draw between different groups of people, you're always going to predispose yourself to look down your nose at people who are on the other side of your line. So I'm rational, you're superstitious, I'm liberal, you know, you're whatever, I'm left, you're right, I'm at your left, whatever it is, we all draw lines. You know, even I don't draw lines, you do. I'll look down my nose at you. Mm-hmm. You, you, can't, you, mm-hmm. can't get, you can't get out from under that. But he says what matters, therefore, is not whether you draw lines, because everybody does. What matters is how you treat people on the other side of your line. Yeah. And then he brings Jesus in. And he says that Jesus died for his enemies. Um, And the line that's that's drawn for Christians is, I'm a Christian not because I'm cleverer than you or uh, better than you or richer than you or whatever. I'm a Christian through grace alone. uh, And therefore, uniquely this way of understanding how lines are drawn completely undercuts any possibility of me looking down my nose at people on the other side of my line because I'm not more intelligent than them. Um, That's not why I'm a Christian whatsoever. And therefore, there's a dynamic within Christian grace that is always pulling the carpet from under this sectarianism in society, from one group looking over at another uh, and saying that, that, that we're better than you. Uh, and that, that's one part of the jigsaw, I think, uh, yeah. of how Christianity can be a um, a, a fresh voice, a, a healing, constructive, distinctive voice in these debates.
2: Yeah. And, and the... it generates, the, uh, generates an approach, if you like alliteration, this is your moment, of uh, patient, prayerful persuasion mm. uh, rather than imposition and, and domination and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the forcing of one view upon another.
0: Sorry, Bea, i cut you off. Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, yeah, I was just going to say the the humility that is inherent to um, that Christian understanding of our fallen identity and God's grace to us also just brings such freedom and flexibility in disagreement um, that is not available to other parties. Um, actually, our lines can be uh, blurred a little <laughs> um, between these, you know, factions that... Are put up because because we we have no right to look down our nose at others and we have no right to um stand on kind of self-righteous ground and assume that our way of thinking and talking and communicating is is somehow naturally superior apart from yeah the cross of christ So
1: and what what is Part of the drama in all of this is the challenge of what actually goes on when people are saying things that we may or may not cancel right as we disagree or as we consider cancelling or listening and being gracious what what is it to say something is it to describe something true about the world is it is it to make truth Mm
2: -hmm. is it
1: an expression of love is it an expression of power and control what 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 is it to which one of those does a christian think You know what? uh, uh, Things should be evaluated as pure truth acts, as as exercises of power. There's a bit of truth in all of those things, and there's probably another you know list beyond those four. But I mean, I I think as a Christian, I'd want to go. The Word of God is certainly a powerful thing, not merely a factual thing, but at the same time, I do believe God made a world so, and and everything that is is understood. Best in relation to God, and so there is a describingness about it. Um, but it's so because God said it was so. So, in a sense, God's saying does. Uh, what does that mean for human talking then? You know, like does does our talking with one another? When I hear some people, when they hear another person talking, they're asking, "What are you trying to win here, or control here, or d- decide here?"
3: Yeah,
1: and so we might even say, because of who you are, you should you should be silent because you shouldn't be the one to exercise power in this context by talking. How, how do we think about that as, as Christians, the actual nature of talking?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's, well, perhaps, perhaps everyone at the end of the day, when you, when you get down to the sort of baseline believes in truth and that truth matters and that perhaps even that truth liberates, but certainly as Christians, we believe all of those things. Uh, that there is truth, that it's been revealed, and that uh, we want others to see it and to be set free by it. Um, so, the, in that sense, there is a power if, 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 that we are wanting t- to see you know, released uh, through our words, but it's, uh, God willing, a, a saving power, um, not one that enslaves people to us or, or to some you know, idea that is about making. So. Um, In one sense I think we're perhaps all at the same game at trying to persuade others to see the world our way, Uh, but perhaps there are different reasons we have for doing that and different motives that drive different people, but certainly uh, the Christian motive as I see it is to to speak life-giving truth, to set people free and and, uh, bring them out of darkness into
1: light. But what happens when all someone can hear is in a sense, the fact that it's an old, privileged white man, presumably straight. Although how I know that or not, how dare I say? But I'm normally I'm allowed to say. If you're white, I can. I'm allowed to assume you're straight, and I'm allowed to assume you have no um, mixed blood in you. So I could. I, I'm allowed to do that, and I say you're old, you're straight, you're white, you're privileged, um, and so that's all I hear. How do, How do you, as a gospel <laughs> communicator, then? Uh, Is there a sense in which it's helpful for us in this moment to humbly say, look, I realize because of where I'm coming from, I may not see everything fully clearly. There may be blind spots I have, or just ways I put things that are really unhelpful in this conversation. Uh, You know, that actually, not going the whole way to saying you dare not speak, but being allowed to go, yeah, look, I've got to admit, there are things I won't see as clearly because of who I am. And that's not a threat to the Christian view of truth.
2: No, no, I, I mean, I think we need to be honest about our, our limits and, and uh, uh, our blind spots. And, and, um, and we obviously need to yeah, live what we say and walk what we talk. Uh, and perhaps we need to sometimes earn the right to speak um, in certain contexts. And we can be too hasty, I think, uh, and, yeah, and set our own course backwards. So, yeah, all of that, I think, is valid. Um but I guess at the end of the day, we do believe you know, that God has spoken and, and that his word is powerful. Uh, and therefore. Isn't
3: this, sorry, Rob, isn't, okay, isn't this one of those areas where, where a biblical view of the world wonderfully diagonalizes the two options that are given to us in society, neither of which are, are terribly healthy? So if you take God out of the picture, if I want truth, it's got to be a truth that I have. Otherwise, it isn't there. So I've, I've either got to say, listen to me, this is the truth. Or I've got to, to walk back from that and say, there isn't any. I don't know it. Uh, but what, what Christianity gives you is, is a, a strong affirmation of truth with humility. So yes, there is truth, absolutely. Uh, and, and it is God's. It is not mine. Oh. And so yes, I can get things wrong. But that doesn't mean that we can never know anything truly, even though I am, you know, we as Christians are the first to admit that our thinking is wonky in all sorts of different ways. That doesn't mean we have to row back from truth. Um, so so in other words, you get the best of both worlds as a Christian. You, you get a robust understanding of truth, but you also get the humility from com- that comes from knowing that I don't know everything.
0: Yeah, and I think that actually might be key to... How Christians can engage in circles of cultural criticism, whatever you want to call it, um, because it's that um, it's that power to both affirm, to, to walk in confidently, affirm, uh, affirm that there is real revealed truth that is given to us by God, and that inherently it's not ours and our ways of thinking are often muddled that means that instead of coming into those circles and conversations as antagonists we can actually come in with this radical sense of being willing to learn from other people we you can come into those conversations holding on to our essential distinctive truth but being really willing to learn alongside people and have conversations where you're not trying to manipulate the conversation to win an argument you're not you're willing to to lay down ways of speaking and talking and thinking that are sideline issues that you might be wrong about Um, and you can actually kind of engage with your conversation partner as a fellow human and therefore a fellow learner right
3: absolutely i think that's incredibly important uh, as as a as a way of sort of liberating the christian in conversation mm. and and i think another way of doing that is that, that for the christian what what she or he says is not always a direct expression no sorry a direct performance rather of their core identity. So mm-hmm. we, we, we live in what, I think it was Robert Beller, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, called the, the age of expressive individualism. That, that my business as a human being is, is expressing my identity through what I speak, how I speak, what I wear, what I do, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And all of my life therefore becomes a performance. And there's a sense in which that's exhilarating, but there's also a sense in which that's incredibly crushing because I am perpetually then judged at my deepest level on all of these things. Um, and therefore, what I say is part of that self-construction of my identity at its deepest level is part of my expression. But of course, the, the Christian doesn't have that burden because our identity is not a performance. Uh, yeah. Our identity is a gift. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, that's another way in which you're you're free to, to get things wrong. You're free to lose arguments. Yeah. You're free to yeah. change yeah. your mind. Yeah. <laughs> because What yeah. you're saying is not a, an expression. It's not a performance of yeah. who you are.
0: There's, yeah, there's something much more secure grounding your your identity. Um, if that was true, then no Christian ever should step inside a philosophy classroom. Or if they if they were going to do so, they should keep their hand firmly down. Um, because to engage in any kind of conversation, whether it's inside an academic classroom or on the street, you uh, the risk of the the realistic risk of you being wrong is very very high, and that has to be okay.
1: Would we say, to extend the metaphor, that though we're given a part to play in a story that God's written that we have a part in? So there is a sense in which God is working out his story from creation to new creation. He He, he gives us existence, but also a relationship to him and an identity that's given. But then also we have this combination of command and invitation to wisdom and praise and worship and so on and so forth, which means, we are still performing and playing a part, but it's, it's, it, yeah, again, it's, I guess that's your diagonalizing thing, Chris, again, where it's not either given brute fact and, and just destined kind of your lot um, determined by some external force, nor is it merely just um, whatever, you know, existence is how you, you know, you're performing is how you find your, you know, make your being, but there's a, there's a bit of both, right? We're, we thrown into God's world as a gift by Him, and part of what He gives us is then to, to be who we are.
0: That's right. Yeah.
2: If, yeah. if I can throw another element into the mix, um, partly because I'm teaching of course on eschatology at the moment, but it's got me perhaps thinking well, further about the fact that because we have a, a certain understanding of, I guess, this world and the world to come and the way in which you know, God's purposes are working themselves out currently and, and uh, we're awaiting things to happen in the future, it relieves us of the burden of trying to win, you know, the cultural battle now or even just yeah. the argument now um, that we can not only take a longer-term view of it um, but uh, know that there are certain things that won't happen in this age yeah. and that we don't have to, you know, as it were, <laughs> Uh, as it would force the issue. We can, again, go back to, as we said earlier, uh, persuasion mode.
1: It's so interesting, isn't it? Like our eschatology makes us kind of, in a sense, progressives and conservatives, right? Progressives because yeah. we see that this yeah. is not satisfied with the Very, status quo. Progressives. Yeah. It's something better, but also conservatives in the sense that we go, we'll never be able to yeah. fix it in this world. Yeah, you know, no. That's no,
0: the not it's not crushed by the kind of progressive trap, which is the fact that... Humans have never seemed to be able to realize their true progressive aims. That can
1: often become that their most kind of vicious right. when That's they're right. revolutionaries, That's sadly, the yeah. of
0: of progressivism. But um, not for not for the Christian progressive who knows that actually it's not until every knee shall bow at the sight of Jesus um, that yeah true human flourishing will be there. But that doesn't mean that we can't um, work toward that as we as we wait the day.
3: Yeah. and neither does it mean that christians are some sort of cardigan and slippers wearing middle ground people that are okay. neither progressive nor conservative i think there's a there's a, a a mandate from the bible to be more utopian than the wildest secular utopian yeah. about yeah. what is possible and also more pessimistic yeah. uh, than the than the most eorish <laughs> secular pessimist about what human beings are capable of and and the the wonder of, of the, the Christian story is that neither of those needs to cancel each other out. So the, the problem, uh, a lot of the time, is that you have to opt for one of those. Mm. Whereas in reality, they they're both true because you know creation and mm. because the fall and because because the Bible story separates those two out because our creation narrative is, is not the same as our fall narrative. We're able to hold those two realities together. I think in a much more organic and and existentially satisfying way than if you've got no distinction between creation and fall in the way you look at the world.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. As you were saying that, Chris, I thought you, you, you can be Stephen Pinker and John Gray at the same time.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but uh, I guess where my thought has then gone from from that is, coming back to the, the tolerance question, is that Christians actually, if they under, have their eschatology in focus, uh, are well set up to tolerate... Um, difference, disagreement, uh, and the kind of, um, you know, the, the battleground of ideas, yeah. uh, perhaps in a way that others aren't, because, you know, we do believe in ultimate truth, but but we don't have to force that issue here and now. Um, you know, we, as Paul says, we, we persuade others, you know, stating the truth plainly, but we, again, we don't have to take up swords, and um, we can therefore tolerate uh, pushback and disagreement and so yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think these things all link up, obviously.
3: And, and for those wanting to push further into that, Miroslav Volf's Exclusion and Embrace is brilliant on that.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, one final thing, if if we have time, yeah. Uh, yeah. do we have time or should we? Yeah. Nah, yeah. up you go. Um, we raised this, oh, I raised this in our email chats before this thing about observing that one of the dynamics that feeds into all of this as well is, um, uh, uh, I guess, in, in a theoretical and rhetorical space, often you, you get the kind of thing where words are spoken of as violence and insults spoken of as harm and, um, and, and a, a I mean, it's something familiar to us in the sense that it's a little bit like Sermon on the yeah. Mount in a sense. Jesus can speak about, you know, you fool is an act of murder and uh, the lustful look is a, a, an act of of adultery and betrayal and, and so on. So there's something familiar in it. Um, but when lived in, you know, I mean, the, the kind of concept of the microaggression captures that, where actually a, a dismissive patronising comment in the context of someone's larger lived experience can be, far more powerful than um than we might think um and yet it does seem like it kind of escalates all interactions and all conversations well any thoughts on how we think about i don't know what we call that but how we think about that thing of this kind of um telescoping in of of um uh, all ethical acts to be heavily political and heavily ethically loaded i think it's one
3: area where a much broader tendency in society shows itself. And and I'm I'm leaning on John Milbank here in theology and social theory. He he sets up a, a stark contrast between, on the one hand, a Christian view of the world where reality is fundamentally relational, Trinity, and those relationships are fundamentally peaceful, but also fundamentally loving. So they're not generic, bland relationships. You know, The, the verses in the Bible that talk about the relationship between the, the father and the son before creation are, are predominantly framed in terms of love language. Um, so, so ultimate reality is one of peace and love for the Christian. And then that sort of cascades down into social relationships and, and comes out in what you might call an ethic of love. Um, And Milbank's argument is what happens when that's no longer there is that very often, and this is what he says happens in our society, are left with brute power as the fundamental relating force in the universe. And if that is true, then it's it's relatively easy to see how that makes social relationships framed fundamentally in terms of, of violence. How else could they possibly be framed if it is all about power at the end of the day? Uh, and and therefore the way in which and interestingly the loss of even the
1: concept of force as well sorry just interrupt so there's no space for force as like violence has an extra level to it doesn't of of malicious force or uh, unjust force but that almost gets thrown out too because it's arbitrary power isn't it so it's all, all power has a is negatively violently destructive rather than even um, yeah sorry
3: well well the the problem for milbank is that we've we've taken the idea of power that that used to be reserved for god himself, and we've we've actually twisted that a little bit as well in in nominalism and so forth and we've we've tried to use that as our paradigm of human power, so I should be utterly unencumbered in my power to rearrange the world how I want it and to rearrange myself how I want myself to suit you know Whatever it is, my my rationality, my desires, and th- there's a bit of, um, I think that's a weak point in the argument. What what plan one is suiting, what desire one is suiting, is is uh, mm. uh, is under there. But then, if everybody's doing that, if I want my world and you want your world, and we're all trying to be God, <laughs> it's not going to end well. Uh, and any any sort of challenge to that does then become violence. Uh, because you're, again, you're challenging me at my deepest level, which is as a world creator.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you see that pattern in the, um, just think about, you know, the first 12 chapters of Genesis, don't you? <laughs> um, that's what happens over and over again. These, um, as you watch these characters face up against each other in, in violence often because their little world creating endeavors don't work for them.
2: Well, and there's an element that, that Mikey, I think you're picking up on. Uh, that language has been inflated with um, uh, creative powers um, in our day, perhaps in a way that is uncharacteristic of previous generations. And Many sort of take this back to at least, well, at least to a reading of Foucault. Uh, Chris can tell us whether it's a fair reading of Foucault or not, um, but uh, that really everything in the end is discursively constructed and uh, reality is discursively constructed and, and therefore words have immense a power to create worlds and therefore they can be weapons of violence and, uh, and so yes watching our words and banning certain words and punishing people for using certain words uh, that all becomes fair game I guess when you think about things that way um, now if I can just do a little advert not I'm being paid for it but uh, uh, the book I've just been reading in the last few days cynical theories by uh, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay Does a very good job of um, teasing out uh, how some of these ideas, um, well, not only came to dominate the academy, but now have really come to uh, infiltrate society uh, and uh, helping produce some of these uh, dynamics that we see um, in various uh, domains, with with social media obviously being um, one. But that I can certainly recommend Cynical Theories. They're not Christian authors, uh, like Rose and Lindsay, but um, uh, very uh, thoughtful uh, scholars.
0: Hmm. hmm. Thanks, Rob. Um, we're really pushing the clock, but I, yeah. <laughs> I just want to um, engage with the last thing before that book recommendation. This is
1: the best thing in the world, having you but, in the conversation because you're having as much fun as everyone else. That's right. Then no, I let back it going, run. shut up, guys, shut up, we're running out of time. Instead, it's like, ah, oh, just a little longer. <laughs> no, it's no, good. I know, I did it late. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: it's, it's, it's a tricky tension, isn't it, between this, this idea this idea of um, I guess how postmodern the idea of words having creative power is and how much there really is a, a biblical basis for it.
2: Yeah. Um, because
0: yeah, yeah. not only does the creator God have power in his words and we are made his, made in his image as as culturers, um, but also there are they're so they're just so many verses pop to mind as soon as you start talking oh, Genesis about Genesis too.
1: Hey, God yeah. speaks in names, but then Adam speaks in names. Yeah,
0: exactly. Adam names the animals, um, and then also, uh, I mean, Mikey, you you spoke about someone on the mount before. Um, Jesus absolutely is dead serious about the the power of words. James, the tongue is a flame of fire. Um, there's there are so many warnings in the epistles about about the use of our words, and so. I think, um, you know, just off the top of my mind, the similarities maybe are are that um, as, yeah, creatures created after our creator's image, um, we, and given the gift of speech and words, there is real responsibility that we are given um, and we have to yield that incredibly carefully because words are destructive, um, but can also build up and bring life. I think Christians can affirm that. Um, but I wonder if the difference maybe between the kind of um, censorship, don't say this word, don't say that word, don't use that phrase and the Jesus model of um, kind of taming your tongue is uh, is kind of the, the heart behind it, right? Like when Jesus commands us you know not to um, not to call your brother a fool uh, and not to, you know, as, as Mikey was was talking about, you know, the the look of adultery and and James's tongue of fire, the the real command behind that is is about your your lack of love for that person, um, your heart behind it. That then, you know, out of the heart speaks the mouth. Whereas, I guess the cancel culture kind of attitude is not really it doesn't seem to me maybe i'm wrong about this but it doesn't seem to me to really care that much about the heart We're behind. almost
1: lost even the words? distinction between racism and sexism of motivation and intent yeah as opposed to uh, received results of racism as right. so an example
0: right. it like is I'm, a-
1: I'm not a racist but i accidentally did that which i now understand in this context came across yeah. this way no, no, no! You're, that was racist. You will be right. Just a it. Stop making
0: right. excuses. Maybe it is. Maybe it <laughs> yeah. is more about a list of words that get crossed out that you're not allowed to say, as opposed to the life giving or life destroying attitude that is behind the the words that we use. Yeah.
3: But I think a rider. I, I completely. Yeah, absolutely. But I think a rider that we might want to put on that is, as Christians, we we do want to love our neighbours. Yeah. And and we we don't want to push the envelope. Oh, you know, yeah. in terms of of what is acceptable, we we want to to work for for the peace and prosperity of the of the city where we are, yeah. um, and uh, you know, in good conscience under God, if we can um, uh, avoid certain languages that that don't have sort of theological implications for 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 right. our faithfulness to God, then out of love for our neighbours, becoming all things to our people, we, why yeah. wouldn't
0: we want to do that? That's right. Yeah, I agree.
1: That's
2: yeah. a good um, last
3: word. Do you reckon? Well, it
2: just becomes a matter then of uh, working uh, out, well, removing all unnecessary offence and leaving only the inherent offence of the gospel to those who are unwilling to uh, to, to hear in his good news. Yes. Yeah, Yeah.
0: and that's the the real word that can free the oppressed. been good eh? So
2: fun. Not three, Part three best.
0: Part
1: three. We're getting somewhere. Thanks again for having us, TGCA. and lovely to spend time with you good.